Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Voting in the 2022 general election begins October 12th. To help you prepare, we're focusing on state and local candidates as well as ballot measures. There are two candidates on the November 8th ballot running for San Diego County Supervisor District 5, which covers North County. Republican incumbent supervisor Jim Desmond is being challenged by Democratic scientist and water director Tiffany Boyd Hodgson. Both candidates met with the San Diego Union-Tribune editorial board ahead of the election. Here's the first 20 or so minutes of each of their interviews. To hear the full conversation, go online to sandiegouniontribune.com slash election 2022. Thanks for listening. Okay, today the San Diego Union-Tribune editorial board is joined by uh, incumbent county supervisor Jim Desmond, who's up for re-election on the November 8th ballot. Jim, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Uh, And why don't we start talking about uh, the county's COVID-19 response. Um, You are in a minority saying that the uh, county um, closed down too much, uh, went a little too, went too far. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just wanted to... in hindsight, what do you think of your uh, of your uh, kind of real time approach to that? Was it the right call still, or do you have any second thoughts, regrets, um, reconsiderations about the way you you approach that? Mm, no, I don't have any regrets on that. Um, I I would probably do the same thing again because there was a lot of I think overreach and, and particularly in the lockdowns. I was all in favor, and I, and I always advocated also for the masks. I advocated for the vaccine, so I'm, I'm vaccinated and boosted, um, and all the so the protocols and things like that. But what I was more focused on is the fact, well, you know, if you're wa- leaving a Walmart or letting those places be open and Costco, but you know, the, maybe the guy, you know, Walmart can sell bicycles, but the mom and pop shop down the street can't. And so, but so I thought businesses should have been allowed the opportunity to sh- prove they could be safe. And, and if they weren't, then we would deal with that. But so no, I, I was really advocating for businesses and for schools and things like that to be open. I think it got a little kind of crazy with, you know, beaches had to be closed and golf courses had to be closed. And, and you know, many of the businesses that were closed, you know, it wasn't necessarily, well, well it was for the businesses, but mostly for the employees. And a lot of those businesses that were shut down, restaurants and hotels and, and you know, places like that were service industry businesses. And a lot of the, the poor you know, and, and underserved people that work in those businesses were out of work. Whereas you know, the, the big box stores were, were allowed to stay open. And so you know, I, I was looking for a fairer approach. I always wanted everybody to remain safe and be safe, uh, but I was, you know, that was that was my big push is let's start opening up what we can safely and protect the most vulnerable. I mean, that was kind of the big push is, is we found out who was the most vulnerable and those with, you know, uh, seniors with underlying conditions or comorbidities. And so, we, you know, let's protect them, but let's allow our schools to open, you know, for kids because, uh, you know, they were much less susceptible uh, to the uh, to the virus. And so, in hindsight, you know, I still think that, you know, we've got a lot, now we're suffering the consequences, particularly in schools um, with kids, you know, that have lost a year, year and a half of, of uh, education. Um, my daughter was a, is a school teacher. She teaches second grade in, in Valley Center. 
And, you know, she's told me she kind of, you know, that th what, what she was teaching was not really at the grade level, you know, it was just more busy work types of things she would tell me. And, and, and some of the poor kids who in Valley Center, you know, that, that uh, you know, don't have, didn't have internet or didn't have computers at home, or they only had one computer and there's many kids in the house. A lot of people lost out on those opportunities. And um, I think we still could have kept the schools open, sports open, those types of things uh, in hindsight. Um, so I, I don't think I would change it. I, I would like to see, and I, I do think perhaps, you know, a lot of people learned uh, throughout this that you know, it was mostly those that were had the underlying conditions and were older that were, were the most susceptible to being sicker or being in the hospital. So I don't have any regrets on that, but um, uh, I do wish we had uh, taken a different approach, particularly when it came to the shutdowns, not necessarily the uh, the precautions. I was always, like I said, an advocate for that, but I still think we shut down too much. Appreciate that answer. Quick question on, you said you were uh, uh, vaccinated and boosted. Do you have this most recent? Uh, booster? Um, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, it, it happens. I got it in July. So I'm assuming uh, I do. So not the most, no, well, the most recent one just came out. When, do, you have, when, do you have plans to get the new booster that is designed for um, Omicron? Well, I do now. I didn't realize a new one came out. So, um, uh, no, I, so I, I didn't have that, that new one. When, when did that come out? Last month. Supervisor, a case can be made that you've got a strong argument that schools maybe never should have closed, and the case can be made that there was an inconsistency about which uh, businesses were closed and which establishments were closed. But I hear skeptics of this talk, and they just seem to me to leave out the whole long COVID uh, question out of the debate over whether or not COVID-19 is as bad as, as some people say it is. There's now an estimate that like one in four people who have had COVID will develop symptoms of long COVID years later or months later coming up with uh, profound maladies. Now there's a massive study of tens of thousands of people that found that like 20% of those people will have severe brain damage or noticeable brain damage affecting their brain function. So if those stats are right, we're looking at more than eight and a half million Americans who have long COVID brain problems. And guess how many people have dementia in America now? Seven and a half million. So we're creating a problem that potentially doubles the cases of long-term brain issues in American society at a time when you recognize Alzheimer's as this profound threat. So it just seems to me that I understand uh, the case made by, by you and, and many folks like you that there was overreaction. But on the other hand, there seems to be zero appreciation on your side of the potential for millions of people having long-term cognitive problems even if they had a mild case of COVID-19 in the shorthand. So what's your take on the long-term COVID threat and whether or not it's adequately part of this discussion? Well, I think that a lot of the consequences, the unintended consequences came out of, out of this. And, and if this is, is true, you know, then it's a lesson learned. I mean, this happens once every 100 years. Nobody had all the right answers. And I'm not claiming I did either. So uh, it was just part of my observation. Then there's also long-term consequences. We got more kids that are suicidal and are taking drugs and, and drug overdoses. And, and we've got a lot more mental illness uh, you know, due to COVID and the shutdown. So you're absolutely right, Chris. There, there are, are consequences and it's gonna take time to learn over the years. And, and, and like I said, I'm not admitting that I, I was 100% right. I was offering different perspectives and different takes. And, 
different ways of potentially doing things while still being as safe as safe as we could be. Uh, so I appreciate that, but you're you're right. There's a lot of consequences on on both sides out there. Can I ask you a follow-up question about that? Where we're we're talking about, um, or you just mentioned that you were offering different viewpoints. There was a lot of media coverage and a lot of different outlets about that. Um, people were critical of you for a couple things. One for um, giving a platform to people whose views of the science didn't think the science was sound generally. And then also of, in particular of your comment about, I think sick, pure deaths. And you talked a little bit about comorbidities earlier and the type of folks who have COVID, but there, there are a lot more than six deaths. So I guess I wanted to give you an opportunity to A, explain that statement. Do you regret that statement? And then also uh, talk to us about your decision to kind of platform some folks who might've been kind of, you know, um, uh, outside the realms of, of reasonable discussion. And if you think that was the case. Okay, so there's a couple of questions in there. I'm trying to figure out which lots, one. Lots to unpack. I guess question six, pure deaths. What, what, why did you say that? Do you regret saying that? What was the purpose of that comment? Well, I guess I regret how that was taken. And, and, and be honest with you, what I was really looking at is saying, we got 96% of the people that died had underlying conditions and, uh, and co or comorbidities. Even the CDC stated that 75% of the deaths that occurred, and, and, and nobody should have died. I mean, I'm, I, you know, anybody who did die, it's, it's a terrible, it's a tragedy, and, and it doesn't make it any less tragic, but 75% at least had at least four comorbidities. So the focus was really not on those six deaths, but it was more on, well, what, what is it that we need to address that you know, people are dying of? What are these comorbidities? I mean, this was early on in the, uh, uh, I think it was in May timeframe or something like that, the, when the uh, epidemic started, I think in March or April, that, um, you know, what are those underlying conditions? And, and we found out that, you know, they were diabetes, obesity, um, hypertension, those types of things. So it was really, you know, more about evaluating all the data. I'm an engineer, I was an airline pilot. I, I, I look at all the data and say, okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? Um, you know, I get, I guess I regret that how it was taken. It was not in the, in, in the intent of, you know, COVID is, is, you know, not a thing or it's not an issue. It's just more, okay, what do we focus on? And who do we target? Who do we protect? And then it came out of that, well, okay, we got to protect people in the senior living facilities. We got to protect people that have these comorbidities, particularly people in the hospital and things like that. So it wasn't really intended to be a slight on COVID. It's just like, okay, most of the people are dying with these. What are these comorbidities and how can we protect people that have them? have those. And that was really the focus of what I was trying to come out with, with that, uh, what uh, turn, unfortunately turned into a headline of the six deaths. And how about guests on your, on your program? Well, I had many, I had, I had a lot. I was trying to offer a, a variety. I had Dr. Jay Abadacharya, professor of uh, health policy at Stanford University. Dr. Car Martin Kuldorf, he's an epidemiologist at the um, Department of Medicine at Harvard. I had uh, Joseph uh, Lopato, he was uh, from uh, an immigrant from Nigeria, who's now, who got a PhD at Harvard. I also had uh, Christian Anderson, uh, Dr. Christian Anderson from uh, UCSD. I had him on and he was an advisor to Fauci and he I didn't agree with always. 
I, I know the uh, um, uh, UT you did an op-ed on, on uh, I think it was Kelly Victory. Uh, you you know had some issues with some of the things she was saying, and she's from Colorado. And a lot of the things that um, were brought up about her was well, it really didn't apply to San Diego, which which was fine. But I you know I interviewed people from Canada. I just you know getting a second opinion in medicine to me is is kind of job one and and um, experts can can disagree. And so I wanted to just make sure and give people a platform. I didn't agree with everything any of them said, but it's just another outlet or another platform for people to, to get other ideas and hear from other people across the country. This was not just a San Diego uh, pandemic. This was across every, everywhere. And we can learn from each other how, you know, this, I did this when I was mayor of San Marcos. I got the mayors all together along the 78 corridor and we, we learned from each other how things were done. So um, I did have a different variety of people on there. I can't vouch for everything everyone said, but I was just trying to get other opinions out there and, and hear from them and, and let other people make their decisions. Um, I, I still always respected uh, Dr. Wooten uh, matter of fact, I was one of the first supervisors that did a podcast with her on vaccinations. I think we had like a thousand people sign up for that one. And um, so it was more of a, a platform for other other ideas, other other voices, second opinions. Um, and I can't, like I said, I can't take responsibility for what every one of them said, but um, uh, it was not intended to mislead at all. Just one more question on the pandemic from me, and then I'll kick the mic to my colleagues. Okay. You said one of the things that, that society in general and the supervisors did was learn over time who was likely to be affected, who was affected by the COVID-19 um, disease, and communities of color were disproportionately affected. How would you rate the, the work you did, um, the outreach you did uh, in that community? Well, I mean, how, how would I rate the outreach to the those most affected i partnered well, up communities with, of color particularly well i've partnered up with uh, my office did uh with a uh, universidad popular up here in north county and they were focusing on uh hispanic communities they were actually going door to door uh in the hispanic communities telling people they were it was safe i partnered up with them we actually uh put we advertised out for them and every time they had a, a vaccination site most of the time they were in San Marcos. Uh, they and they true and they paired up with True Care uh, up here in North County. So you know, I gave them a platform and and we did a bunch of media splashes on that for our predominantly our Hispanic um, uh, population up here in North County. And then also, uh, you know, the um, uh, we we supplied Wi-Fi. One of the things I actually tried to do is um, let's see during the ARPA dollars. Uh, supply broadband for kids that that uh, didn't have internet access. And, you know, back to my daughter's uh, case where, where she was teaching her class in Valley Center, a lot of her kids are, are poor, you know, and cut people of color, kids of color, first time, you know, English learners and things like that. And they didn't have broadband at home. They didn't have, you know, the internet access at home. And so I championed an effort uh, during that uh, uh, ARPA. I uh, dollars and fought for broadband and and, uh, and the state is also putting in those types of things. So 
we, I did outreach with University Popular. We did the outreach on the internet as far as to everybody uh, for the about the vaccinations. And then uh, the internet and broadband for kids that didn't have um, uh, Wi-Fi. And if they needed laptops or things like that, we tried to get grant monies uh, for that as well. So we, we focused a lot on, on people that just weren't getting the vaccinations and then didn't have access to uh, internet primarily for kids and things like that for, for school. Thank you. And uh, one of the things that we did as an editorial board when we realized that communities of color were uh, disproportionately affected, particularly the Latino community, mm -hmm. we actually had a Spanish language editorial um, where we had some an editorial in English, critical of county government and government in general needing to do more PSAs in Spanish, more outreach to a particular community. We ran that at same editorial in, in the Spanish language on the same day in the newspaper, put it online. Um, and so I guess I, I know one of the things that has been brought up by that you said in prior campaigns was your, we don't have a press to uh, 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 in San Marcos. The, the, the language in San Marcos is English for San Marcos City Hall. I guess what are your, in the context now of having been through a pandemic where Spanish language was literally a lifesaver. Have your thoughts on, on you know, using multiple languages at a government level changed? Um, thoughts on that? Well, that one, that one was taken out of context. That was just a short little clip. And uh, it wasn't, I mean, at the time we had translation services in, in San Marcos. Um, I regret saying it and, and the fact that it and, and how it was used, but it was more in the context of, and even, you know, valid today of, we should be working together. And, you know, when I was brought up, you know, my, I'm an older guy, uh, you know, we were taught about being a melting pot and how do we concentrate on our, our what we have as commonality as opposed to differences. I think today that we're focusing a lot more on differences than we are as, on our mutual strengths. So it was it was kind of an off the cuff remark, you know. And but in you know we've actually in my office, like I said, in San Marcos, we did have translation services, and 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 also you know I voted for at the county for all of the uh, you know translations to the multiple languages that we we provide right now. Um, I also uh, we we do put our stuff out in both English and Spanish. Uh, my my uh, state of the city, my fentanyl town hall. Those types of things, uh, I've had, or say the town, I guess um, they're all they're all done in, in Spanish language as well. So I, I do regret I said that, and it was, but it was out of it was more out of the context of how how do we work together as opposed to how do we fight we work you know we focus on differences, which I think is an, it doesn't hasn't really done us that well today. But um, I'm, so I I uh, I'll admit I regret that, but it was taken out of context. Okay, thank you uh, for joining us today. The San Diego Union Tribune editorial board is talking to uh, fifth district county supervisor candidate, Tiffany Boyd Hodgson. Tiffany, thanks so much for taking time today. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. And let's start with an issue that we've been focused on quite a, uh, a bit, which is county jails. Obviously you're not running for sheriff, there's a separate election for that, but as a county supervisor, you would have a vote over their budget. And um, the issue, a lot of issues to, you know, um, 
of huge import there, but the, the top one seems to be inmate deaths. The rate of inmate deaths is higher since the uh, former sheriff, Bill Gore, stepped down in February. And I'm just wondering what ideas you have to um, try to keep inmates alive, which seems like a very basic function of, um, of government. It is, and you know, we have a responsibility to care for folks who are incarcerated in our custody. I think we're up to maybe 17 deaths at this point, and that's up, that's an even higher number than when we last spoke when we did the, the Q&A. So in my opinion, historically, the supervisors have had um, sort of a hands-off approach to the sheriff's department. And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to working with whomever is in that role. Um, you know, I, I plan to work closely with them, but it is clear that there that there that there needs to be some accountability for that and some prevention as well. So, um, you know, one of the ways that we can uh, try to prevent that is making sure that um, you know, and I haven't seen statistics on you know how these folks are dying. You know, a lot of them the, the stories just seem that they're found unresponsive, but. If, for example, it is fentanyl being trafficked into uh, into the jails, it's it's important that we take measures to try to prevent that. And some of those measures might include um, better screening, um, removing sort of the, the personnel aspect of screening. So folks that are being screened don't feel necessarily like they're being um, accused of anything, but you know, maybe implementing canines. Um, it's, it's important as well that we have um, um, devices or services in place, for example, like medical medication assisted treatment. If folks are coming in and perhaps they are going through opiate withdrawal to be able to service them uh, so that we can make them more comfortable. It's important that we have mental health care workers on board and available to help with, uh, with folks that are incarcerated. And uh, you know, that's, that's one way that we could, um, those are a few ways that we could try to, to prevent. Um, you know, there is the, uh, there's the, 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 the Citizens Review Board, CLERB, and I, I've, I have skimmed that report. I am in favor of some of the, the, um, the recommendations that they make. I think that that, Enforcement Review Board should be expanded and enabled to provide, um, you know, recommendations that can be implemented and uh, enable more accountability. I believe that, you know, we've asked a lot of police officers in the last few years, of course, with COVID. I think that we are, you know, similar to teachers, we keep putting stuff on them that they may or may not be interested in doing, they may or may not be qualified to do. And I think that, you know, one of the ways that we could potentially prevent um, and, and, you know, just improve the, the whole situation with, with our law enforcement and sheriff's department is having a look at what they're doing and making sure that they are doing what they're doing, what they're best at, rather than continuing to put uh, more operations and more jobs on them that they might not be qualified to do. And that, you know, that leads to burnout, that leads to uh, folks going somewhere else. It leads to them, um, you know, not staying in, in their, their job, for example. And, and we know that we have recruitment and retention issues in the sheriff's department. Um, and that's nationwide, but it seems to be particularly acute here in San Diego. 
So I believe that those are those are some ways that we could try to improve the situation in the jails. Um, it's it's you know San Diego's been called out. It's made national news, um, and there definitely should be some programs implemented. And I look forward to working with whomever is in the sheriff's office to to be able to to brainstorm and better understand you know, what the process is like, and um, you know maybe provide training on naloxone for personnel, uh, making that available. You know, that's something else that, that, uh, that I favor. So I think that those are, those are some ways. I appreciate the thoroughness of that answer. A couple of follow-up questions on, on what you said. When you're talking about screening, getting into jails, there's been a debate about whether that should involve um, jail personnel or not. Would you uh, support the idea that jail personnel should be screened or do you think that that's a, a bad idea? Well, you know, I and I, I haven't talked with any police officers about this, so I don't know how they would feel about it. I haven't talked to, to any personnel. Um, you know, the, the easy solution, of course, is to, yes, screen everybody. Um, I'm not sure that everybody needs to be screened every day, though. Perhaps if we had um, uh, screenings that occurred periodically, that might be enough of a deterrent. If that is, in fact, the way that um, that that drugs are getting in, whether it's um, you know, law enforcement personnel, whether it is um, you know, family members. Um, if perhaps the threat of being screened and, and caught is, is there, then that might, that might be enough of a deterrent. Um, I know that that's probably expensive and there might not be the infrastructure in place to do that. But if, uh, you know, if drugs are getting into the into the jails and inmates are dying and we know that it only requires a very very small amount of fentanyl um, because we know that inmates are those that are incarcerated their tolerance is reduced right so it takes less to uh, you know the, the amount that they may have taken when they were not incarcerated is enough it might be enough to kill them so we we know that it's getting in we don't know how exactly it's getting in um, i would propose that we try to conduct some kind of systematic investigation into that so that we can determine if we need to, to screen, you know, where to screen. But in absence of that, I feel like we're in a very, very urgent situation and people are dying and it's inexcusable. Thank you for that. And then the other question uh, occurs to me, you said um, that CLURB should be expanded. What do you mean, what do you mean by that? It's powers or the number of people sitting on it? What, what can you offer some specificity there? Sure. And, and I'm not sure necessarily that it would need to be more personnel on, on that board, but, you know, the Citizens Review Law Board, they, you know, they can make recommendations and um, those, those recommendations don't necessarily have to be implemented. So perhaps there's a way to work together uh, between CLURB and, uh, and law enforcement, recognizing that everyone is trying to work in good faith towards an outcome that keeps people alive and it keeps people accountable and reduces behavior that is not exemplary for, uh, you know, that doesn't exemplify law enforcement and, and try to put measures in place so that CLERB does have some, um, some accountability oversight or, or ways to implement accountability and oversight based on the recommendations that they have. Um. I wanted to shift gears, and we can come back to this if any board member wants to, but shift gears to the pandemic. In your Q&A, uh, you were pretty critical of the county's uh, approach, um, uh, you know, especially in the early days to, to, to that, to the rollout of uh, vaccines, to making sure that it, it was an equitable process. 
I guess my question for you is how would you have done it differently? Hindsight obviously is 2020, but how would you have done it differently if you were on the board at that, you know, during those, uh, uh, that early months and those first couple of years of the pandemic? Sure. I mean, it's always, it's always easy to criticize when you're not in the chair, right? Um, but I, I will say that the county response under Chair Fletcher, it saved lives. It was a conservative response. Uh, it was in the face of an event that we have not seen in our lifetimes. And as a result, we have one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. Uh, I'm vaccinated, my husband's vaccinated, we're both boosted, our children are vaccinated, my, our, our eldest is boosted, um, and sort of speaks to the adherence issue with you know, having multiple vaccinations required. Uh, our other three children are not yet boosted. But, um, you know, I feel like we did the best we could with what we have. Does that mean that we would do everything the same way if a similar event happened? I hope not, because I hope we've learned from that situation. We've, you know, the pandemic gave us opportunities to learn. It showed us very, uh, it laid bare very uh, glaringly that it, um, you know, it exacerbated inequities between children and schools. It, it widened achievement gaps. It exacerbated healthcare access difficulties and challenges. It also exacerbated the emotional and domestic uh, labor of particularly women. You know, I'm speaking from experience. I found myself at home trying to trying to keep four kids on Zoom school, and it worked really well for one of my kids with a learning disability. It did not work well for some of the others. Um, I think that we should learn from what we did in the past. Now, um, what I would do differently, and, you know, I can only, you know, Generally, I'm supportive of the way it was handled. But what I would do differently is I would have not downplayed the severity of, um, of, of the pandemic. And I, I think it is worth noting that there are several reports, including one by the UT, that my opponent did. Um, and if I disagreed with something, what I think I would have done is brought people to the table, business leaders, um, faith groups, school teachers, uh, community uh, community colleges, community organizations and said, hey, you know, this is where we are with this pandemic. And right now we don't know exactly how it spreads. We don't know exactly what the most, what the reasonable measures are, but we're, we're closing everything down so that we can sort of get our bearings. But let's put together a set of criteria that we can feel comfortable about, maybe run it by a few medical doctors and see, is this something that we could implement in order to protect businesses, to protect patrons, to protect employees, to protect um, business bottom lines, um, to make sure that we are erring on the side of caution. But if we have specific criteria that are reasonable, that we can implement those. You know, in, in my conversations during this campaign, I've talked with um, I, I've talked with folks that worked at the county, and we you know, we think a lot about. Uh, frontline workers as being firefighters and law enforcement and um, nurses and doctors and ER doctors. And uh, we don't necessarily immediately come to mind, it doesn't necessarily come to mind that the that the county workers were also frontline workers. And I had a conversation with a librarian who works for the county and she was telling me about some of the ways her job changed during COVID. And uh, she was talking to me about, she's a librarian, so she's used to working with people who come in and need services. And in fact, in some places in the county, we've had social workers partner with librarians. But she was telling me, for example, that you know she was being asked to, to help people with COVID and triage them, and she saw people die 
And I thought, wow, that's, that's not, that's probably not in her job description. And I think what I would have done in that situation is number one, I would have tried to investigate whether or not those workers were willing to do that. And secondly, if they weren't, you know, make, make provisions for that. And thirdly, if they were, I would have, uh, I would have agreed to compensate them accordingly. And it's worth noting that my opponent did not vote to compensate them for those folks that were doing that. Um, my opponent has been uh, the source of a lot of misinformation around COVID-19. I would not have done that. I, I would have listened to what the experts were saying. I would have not had kind of a knee-jerk reaction just because someone who opposed me politically, uh, and this is speculative, of course, but it seems this way, um, I would not have had just a knee-jerk reaction without evidence and without solutions saying it's not that serious. We've only had six people die, well, only six pure deaths from COVID. Um, I would have worked with, uh, with partners in the community to better make sure that the rollout of the vaccines, particularly in areas where there are a lot of Spanish speaking folks, that we had people that could speak Spanish from the county on site to facilitate that and, and, you know, and, you know, be sensitive and mindful that folks coming in that don't speak the language or who may have um, historical hesit hesitation based on sort of historical skepticism around the way we have done medicine in this country, um, help all allay those fears. And I personally volunteered for groups that were rolling out the vaccine that did give vaccines to folks that were predominantly Spanish speaking. And I, I saw that it could have been helpful to have more Spanish speaking folks from the county there to enable culturally competent care being administered. Those are, those are some ways I think I would have done it differently. Again, it's hard to know unless you're in the chair. I think that if we are faced with something similar to what we had with COVID-19, we would do things differently. And I, and I would hope we would. Does that mean that we got it wrong the first time? No, it doesn't. It just means that we, we did the best we could with what we had and we can learn from it. Thanks, a few quick follow-up questions and then I'll pass the mic um, to my comrades. Um, are you a Spanish speaker? No, I, I, I wish I was, but uh, I have tried. It is something uh, I've spent some time on Duolingo trying to uh, trying to learn. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a neuroscientist. I, I know a little bit about language acquisition. We don't do it correctly. We don't teach language properly in this country. But um, it's very hard to learn a different language when you're an adult. It's very hard to speak it without an accent. And I fall into that camp. And are, when you say you're boosted, do you have the most recent booster or you're boosted from the, the prior I'm boosted, round? I'm boosted from before. Okay. Uh, will you get the new shot? Yes, I, I again, <laughs> this sort of speaks to the adherence issue, right? With, with requiring for vaccines that you know, regular people like me find, find it hard to, to, to get there. But yes, I, I will, I plan to, I think, um, we in my family, and I think it's uh, I think it's mostly been luck at this point. We are very fortunate that we have not had COVID, and no one in our family has, and there are six of us. So I I would like to keep it that way. I'm very very concerned about the long term impact and the seemingly neurological impacts of COVID. I think it's yet to be seen how that's going to impact us as a society, um, and I'm very concerned about about getting it. 
And I would like to try to reduce the, the probability of ending up in the hospital or dying if I do end up getting it. And that's what, that's what these vaccines do. So what's your timeline to get it? What are you, when are you thinking you might? <laughs> Not today. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, it's, I guess I have to go into myturn.gov and, and schedule it. And then, so, so my last question is, you talk about the preparedness uh, during the pandemic. We just saw with monkeypox um, a slightly similar situation, at least a chance to apply some lessons learned. How would you rate the county's response to that? And, and how would you have handled things differently if you were in the chair? I think that I think it was I think people were more ready and more ready to step in and understand the urgency. I, I would say that from that perspective, it was it, it was better. Uh, my understanding is that it's been tough to get the supply of vaccines, and the uh, but the county has now apparently received more vaccines, and they are rolling them out. I have not been to any vaccine sites, so I don't know how it's going on the ground. But I would hope that there are um, there are cultural sensitivities being put into place and cultural appropriateness uh, in that administration and. I would also say, um, you know, this is a smaller population that are being encouraged to get vaccinated, but I still think that there could be more, um, you know, public relations and more outreach to try to help people understand what it looks like, when they can get it. And uh, I, I, I would say that there's, that, that the county has done a fair job of that, but more is probably needed. Thanks again for listening to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. For more election coverage, go to SanDiegoUnionTribune.com slash election 2022. Thanks for listening.